Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Here we are, after so many days of oppressive humidity and torrential summer tropic rain, and it's still raining. He crazy. But I'm still a fan of it, and with all of the indoorsiness that these tides of summer rain are imposing on Miami, I found myself wandering, for the thousandth time, toward that part of my book collection that hosts a bunch of wimpled, pre-owned, mass-market paperbacks by John Updike, one of the giants of 20th century American literature, described by David Foster Wallace as, quote, a penis with a thesaurus. Updike was the winner of virtually every literary prize under the sun, except for the Nobel, and he was reviled for being a misogynist and celebrated as a lyricist. It was a storied career, Bobble envied and admired and mind-bogglingly prolific. And now, just ten years after his death, John Updike is pretty much forgotten. Editor-in-chief at The New Yorker, David Remnick, a subject of wild reverence on the Thousand Movie Project podcast, eulogized John Updike on The Charlie Rose Show by referring to him as one of the last, quote, men of letters, by which he meant to invoke not only Updike's skill as a novelist, uh, which was the main cap that he wore professionally, but also as a short story writer and as a poet and an essayist, a critic, a playwright, an avid letter writer. Updike did a lot. And since I myself am trying to do a lot of writing too these days with the diary posts on the website and the podcast scripts and the movie essays and the fiction, it seemed to make sense that as all the rain is drumming my window and I've got no place to go, I should reacquaint myself with what it's like to read the work of somebody who is mind-fuckingly prolific and to thereby subject myself to the same sorts of repetitions to which I'm probably subjecting my own audience. And so I picked up one of his lesser-known novels uh, called Memories of the Ford Administration, and I know, it's hard, but try not to just start frantically coming at the sound of that title. And my verdict was that it's hard to read, or it's hard for me to focus, I should say, because it isn't really Updike's fault. It's the book itself. It's the object. For the last two years of high school and the first two years of college, I dated somebody who lived in what you could call way South Miami, a farming community called the Redlands. When I first got my car at 17 and started driving all the way down there to pick her up, I would have to go first through Homestead, which is a little more like proper Miami in that you're not likely to get stuck in traffic behind an actual mule. When I was driving through Homestead, I would pass a little used bookstore that I hadn't even known was there. It was the, the southernmost unit at the end of a four-unit strip mall, which itself was located at the center of a comically oversized parking lot on the northbound side of US-1. The owner was a woman in her 60s with long brown hair streaked with gray and a beautiful huge smile that was yellowed from coffee and smokes in a way that, I and I don't know how to explain this, but it just seemed like a charming kind of accent on her personality. She worked at a desktop computer that was perfectly modern, save for its archaic inventory system. Every one of her 14-minute attempts to tell you if she had a copy of whatever book you were looking for invariably culminated in just a flustered shrug. She did a lot of shopping on that desktop, and there was a TV mounted over her head. And if you walked into the store in the late morning, you would be able to stand around and watch the court shows with her, which were always muted with the closed captions on. And... Often as not, you'd find her ignoring the show, just sitting there in silence, immersed in one of the innumerable romance paperbacks that passed both ways over that counter every day. 
The shop had been passed down to her by her parents a decade prior, and I remember getting a vibe like she didn't really need to be there to be doing this, like she had money of her own. And I know that actually she, she did say something to that effect to me, I just don't remember what it was. The whole place smelled like old paper and a bit of vanilla. And even though literally more than half of the store's shelf space was devoted to romance novels, it was here that I found so many of the mass-market reprints of Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer and John Updike, with all, all of them troublesome dudes, I can see it now, about whom I was just over the moon in a very teenage way back then. I was here at this little used bookstore a couple times a month during those summers, usually on my way to pick up my girlfriend in the Redlands, and those summer days, like these, were very rainy. Maybe it's just nostalgia, but I, I don't think I ever set foot in that bookstore when it wasn't pouring rain. And now, today in 2019, I find myself holding, while the rain pours, one of the many pungent paperbacks I bought 11 years ago at a bookstore that's no longer in business, written by an author who's no longer alive and who was once so prominent in the culture but is now no longer read. Ten years from now, I will probably still not have finished reading all of those Updike books that I bought back in 2008 and 9 and I'll be cracking their delicate spines again on some other wet Miami summer afternoon, and I'll be thinking back to this moment, and I'll be wishing that I was back here. Have you licked that flower? Have I licked that flower? The one that I was just talking to you about. Have I licked it? No. Okay, look, here's a flower. Oh my god, these American flowers. Oh, here it is. No, these are not the same ones in Nicaragua. Yeah, it's something not in Nicaragua. The frauds. They're not frauds. There's but a, they look just like it. But you know, it would be fraudulent if there was a sign that says, hey, look, just like your childhood in Nicaragua. <laughs> Suck these flowers. They're coming to get you, Barbara. The sun was still up high and hot last night at around 5.30, and as I was walking from my apartment over to Red Bar, which is a nice, chill, dark, ambient spot just off Brickle Avenue, where between 5 and 6 p.m. on weekdays you can get a, a can of Tecate beer for a buck, I got stopped on the sidewalk by a dude in a tank top. His jeans were dirty, and his arms were sleeved in fading tattoos of what looked like sports logos and women's names written in cursive. He was missing a front tooth and had an expensive-looking, stiff-brimmed baseball cap balanced on his head at a precarious tilt. His hands were clasped in front of his chest as though in prayer, which I guess is the universal symbol for humility, and he was rocking those prayerful hands back and forth and back and forth as he got closer and closer until, eventually, I took out my earbuds and listened to what he had to say. He was calling me sir, which immediately put me on guard since people generally don't call me sir unless they want money. And so, before he'd even told me what he needed, I was already starting to regret that I had opened my ears. Leaving your earbuds in and walking straight past an imploring homeless person, throwing them a contrite dismissive wave as you do it, does appear to be an acceptable form of dismissal on Brickell Avenue. It's cold, I know, and it's definitely not all that respectful, although I do think it has a leg up on the tactic of just pretending that they aren't there. But, if, like me, you're walking on 8th Street between Little Havana and Brickell, and especially if you're doing it every day, well, you're going to be approached by a lot of people. Maybe five or eight of them a day. And, yeah, it sucks to see yourself become numb to the sight of people dressed in, you know, torn and rumpled clothes, especially in all this rain and heat. But you do, you grow numb to the sight of people, you know, plucking fast food out of the trash can and eating... I don't know, the, the bottom third of a Whopper, or even just the discarded onions in, you know, small, precious, savory bites. 
Even the sight of somebody pissing against the side of a building or shitting in a hedge, it's tragic and it's ubiquitous, but like anything else, if you start seeing it often enough, you'll kind of stop seeing it. Or you stop noticing it, I should say. In William T. Volman's big book about violence, called Rising Up and Rising Down, he mentions at one point that when we hear in the news about somebody being shot to death, which of course we routinely do, we never really close our eyes and actually try to imagine the terror and pain of a person being torn apart by hot pieces of flying lead, the panic and the agony. And that's fine, because as Volman points out, we couldn't possibly function if we truly stopped what we were doing to appreciate the horror of every misfortune that we hear about in our daily lives. I'm approached so often along my walk to and from the coffee shop every day that I'm developing a callus over that kind of compassion impulse to stop and hear everyone out and to be super apologetic whenever I can't spare the money. With this guy who stopped me on the sidewalk last night, I think I was halfway there, halfway toward, you know, ignoring, but he was so imploring and his gratitude was so effusive. But he says to me, sir, sir, thank you for stopping, sir. Listen, my name is Red. I'm not from here. I'm from New York. Me and my wife, we just came down here visiting and we were trying to get some money together. The people in my area who are homeless have different strategies for approaching folks on the sidewalk. For example, there's a woman who stays in the parking lot of a 24-hour CVS just under I-95 who purrs to people as they pass, bear change, mister? She says it to everybody, no matter their gender. It could be a 12-year-old boy or a 30-year-old woman. Bear change, mister? Then there are those who stop you and say, Hey, sir, I'm sorry to bother, but could you help me out with some money so I could get something to eat? It's, you know, very straightforward, very direct. This one is the most common approach. Sometimes they'll accent it with a, a remark about, you know, how long it's been since their last meal, or some quick mention of another misfortune. Like, for example, the one I most recently heard was a guy saying that, you know, he just got kicked out of a homeless shelter because he didn't have a driver's license. Um, or sometimes they'll tell you, you know, they've been sober for six weeks and they're just trying to, you know, keep their head straight. Slightly less common, but still pretty common, are the stories storytellers. The people who stop you and tell you, look, this isn't something I normally do, and I'm not proud to be doing it, but I was coming up here for a job interview last week, and my roommate called to say that the landlord locked us out. I don't have any money to get a hotel room. My family lives up in Daytona, and I don't have any way of getting up there, but I called, and I think they're going to drive down and pick me up sometime in the next 24 hours. I'm all out of cash, though, because I needed to use the payphone to get in touch with them, and I had to call them repeatedly, so could you maybe spare a couple dollars so I can just grab a burger real quick? I hate to be asking, and normally I don't do this, but it's just a, a, a conflagration of misfortunes. I used to puzzle about the reason behind the storytelling approach. For some, I imagine it's a matter of pride, and that's totally understandable. It's got to be a terrible blow to the ego to have to ask a stranger for money all day, to be ignored by most of them, and so maybe, as a way of protecting their self-esteem, they want to present their state of need as though it were a very temporary situation, an inconvenience, a fluke, a big misunderstanding, just a strange confluence of misfortune, something that we've all experienced. One of those days. For others, I imagine it's an opportunity to be seen and heard for a couple minutes. Being homeless, people probably mostly try to not notice you. The homeless in my area, from what I've observed and, regrettably, what I've practiced, aren't really spoken to or looked at with anything but pity by most people who pass, if indeed they're looked at at all. But for these 30 or 40 seconds that they can bend your ear with a totally relatable story, well, they're having a conversation. I had this one experience in the Gables when I was 22 or 23. I was coming out of the alehouse at the time, and there was a dude sitting on the bench right out front. But I was kind of tipsy, and he, he, was, he was looking in my direction while talking to himself, and so I thought he was talking to me. So I stopped, and I leaned in, and I asked him to repeat that, said, sorry, I didn't hear you. And he just started laughing, and he waved me away, and he said, no, no, I was just talking to myself. But then, very hastily, he goes, thanks for acknowledging me, though. People normally don't. Anyways, as concerns these storytellers, a couple weeks ago, I was outside of Brickell City Center when a, a tall, 
gaunt dude with hollow cheeks and, and very few teeth and shoulder-length blonde hair came up to me, and he had a small piece of paper in his hand. And I'd seen this guy in the neighborhood a few times already. He's always walking in a busy way, like he's in a hurry, his hair sort of belling stiffly back and forth with all those urgent steps. Let's call him Larry. Larry stops me with a barrage of apologies, his hand held out as if he's asking for both pause and forgiveness. He calls me sir. There's an address scrawled on this little piece of paper, and in, in, in it's scrawled in what looks like the handwriting of a child or, or maybe a palsied adult. And he tells me that he's trying to get to the VA office, the Office of Veteran Affairs, and he hastens to say that he served in Vietnam and, and that he went overseas but didn't see any combat, but he was there for a full tour, and he says that he's been trying to get to the VA up in West Palm for a few days now, but he's had to buy a bunch of shit with a few dollars that he's picked up from people. And then he holds out both palms as though to level with me. And he says, look, don't get me wrong, I'm homeless, but I don't do drugs, all right? He crosses himself hastily as if to ward off even the thought of drugs. He says, I look like fucking shit, I know, but that's because I've got AIDS. I've had it for a couple years, but I haven't been able to get medicine for fucking weeks now because I haven't been able to get up to West Palm. He tells me he's just looking for enough money so that he can hop on the metro, a couple blocks down, and get as far north as it'll take him. He tells me that all he needs is a few dollars, and that he understands if I'm afraid that he's going to go spend it on drugs or alcohol, but that he'd be more than happy to walk with me over to the metro so that I can buy him the fare for the train and just hand him the ticket and watch him get on... I know from the beginning of his story that it's going to culminate in him asking for money. And I also know that I don't have any cash on me. So why didn't I interrupt him and just let him know that I didn't have any cash? Why did I let him go through this whole story? Wouldn't it have been more appreciative of his time if I had just cut him off before he slogged through the whole tale? What I couldn't determine in that moment was whether it would be more rude to interrupt him, therefore saving him time, or would it be more rude to let him speak and thereby waste his time? Anyway, when I do finally tell him that I've got no money, he just turns on his heels sharply without another word or even a lingering look of contrition or contempt, and then he skedaddles onward toward the public's crowd. Later that week, I was taking an Uber from my apartment to the Gables, and when we passed a few homeless people splayed across the sidewalk, the driver shook his head and made a remorseful noise. He was in his 50s, Cuban guy, bald. He made a remark about homelessness, and I mentioned to him something I talked about here on the podcast just a couple weeks ago, about how sometimes there's suddenly just a new guy in the neighborhood who becomes a distinct presence, and you never know where he came from, and then one day he's just gone, and you have no idea where he went. And then the driver tells me that he lives nearby, and that he does a lot of driving in the area, and so we keep bantering about the neighborhood, and it turns out that he knew ex the exact dude that I was talking about in, in the previous podcast. He walked like this! The driver made an inverted peace sign to represent the guy's legs, and then simulated the dude's characteristic waddle. That's him, I said. And there's a dude with the keyboard under I-95. The driver nodded. I see that one. And then I told him the story about Larry, and the story of Larry's story regarding the metro rail, and, and the office of VA up in West Palm, and the AIDS, and I'm only halfway through it when the driver raises a finger as though to contribute, and then stops himself so as not to interrupt. He's smiling at me in the rear view, but he waves me along. I have a story about him! So I finish my story about Larry, and then the driver tells me his two stories about Larry. And he always have a paper with him, the driver tells me. And then the kicker, the address on Larry's paper isn't real. For some reason, I am so surprised by this. I tell the driver how I'd thought that the dress lent him this air of credibility. The driver nods at me in the rear view, emphatic. That's why he does it! I lean back in my seat and think about this. In all the approaches I've gotten from the local people who are homeless, I'd never thought of their approaches in terms of using props or employing strategies. 
maybe holding up a sign, sure, and sometimes they hold out a baseball cap to collect money rather than one of the big green plastic Flanagan's cups or, you know, a paper cup from Burger King. And but now, for the first time, I'm thinking critically not only about the different containers in which I've seen, you know, needy folks collecting money at intersections, but about what each of those containers evokes for me as the donor. Does the Burger King cup, as a container for collecting donations, evoke more sympathy from me than, say, the simple upturned palm? The upturned palm, granted, isn't very practical for collecting anything more than, you know, a little bit of change or a buck or two, but it's evocative of, like, Oliver Twist. It's a universal and profoundly human gesture of simple human need. But the cup is more practical. Except the Burger King cup is also... It's not localized. A Flanagan's cup, on the other hand, that makes me think of my neighborhood. It makes me think of our shared area. It makes me appreciate that this guy begging for money is a local. What about those who approach with a smile versus those who look dazed or exhausted or sad? I don't mean to suggest that their pleas or their approaches are disingenuous, nor the same thing about their needs, but I'm beginning to think that as... as as practitioners, basically, they must have some sense of strategy when it comes to their approach, and that there might be a good deal more consideration behind the homeless person's presentation than I had previously assumed, which then poses a question about the strategies that they might employ while they're out, you know, in the field, so to speak. By which I mean, you know, the choices about whether to be a storyteller or the concise solicitor, and whether to beg with an upward-turned palm or a Flanagan's cup. When they choose a strategy, are they doing so purely because that strategy has proven effective? I'm thinking, for instance, of a person who lives around a bus stop near my job, who sometimes just pretends to have an Australian accent while asking for money. Or he comes up with, you know, different stories about how he came to Miami. Um, and I, I pay special attention to this guy because he and I went to high school together, and his name is also Alex. He's a couple years younger than me, and I know that he was on the football team when we were in high school and that he was really good at it, but he was also in a lot of special education classes, which was kind of a different part of the school. And, I'm, and I, I look at him and I think, okay, we, we, we went to the same school, and even though we never knew each other, should I do something here? Like, if we if we were to say that all of us are duty-bound to the poor, like in a religious way or just a civic duty kind of way, could you then say by extension that we are exceptionally duty-bound to those who share some piece of our past? And if so, how big a piece of our past do they have to share in order to count as like... Well, anyways... I was also thinking there's a kind of poetic irony about Larry and seeing that, you know, here's a homeless person in my area whose most effective prop is a sheet of paper with an address on it. An address being, after all, the thing that a homeless person presumably lacks. Anyways, here we are last night. I'm on my way to meet Bob and Linda at Red Bar for some $1 beer, and this guy stops me, and he's wearing a tank top and a baseball cap and dirty jeans and lots of tattoos. His front tooth is missing, and he's telling me right away about how he and his wife are down here from New York. They don't know the area very well, and now, by accident, they've wandered off in different directions. For punctuation, he holds up an iPhone with a cracked screen. He tells me that his battery's dead, and he can't call her. About a year ago, my car got broken into right outside my apartment three times in one weekend. So I'm super jaded about, like, getting robbed in the area, and I'm afraid now that he's going to ask me to use my phone and then just, like, run off with it. But I'm also worried about it because I know that, I know myself, and I know that for fear of seeming impolite, I will probably invariably end up handing my phone over the moment he asks me to use it. But he doesn't ask to use it. He says, could you please just call my wife for me and tell her that Red is on his way, that I'm going to be up here in the, in the Brickle Honda dealership? So I take out my phone, and he tells me a number, and I dial it in front of him. I put my earbuds back in as it starts to ring, as it rings and rings and rings. 
We stand there. The call goes to voicemail. Red starts walking in the opposite direction, toward the dealership, and he calls out to me, raising a hand and thanks. If you don't mind, could you maybe just shoot her a text saying I'm on the way? And I'm kind of taken aback by how this encounter totally did not turn out to be what I thought. And so he goes on in his direction, and I go on in mine, and I stop after a few paces, and I text the number that he gave me. I tell the person on the other side that Red's phone is out of battery and that he's on the way to the Brickle Honda dealership. Is that the whole thing, or is it all you remember? That's it. Ah. Where are we going? Uh, Papa John's. I don't know if I told you this, uh, I probably didn't, but I saw the new Child's Play movie at Cinepolis in Coconut Grove this week, and I really fucking liked it. Both the movie theater, which I don't go to very often on account of the parking situation, parking incidentally cost me $13, which is more than the actual ticket. Anyway, what's weird about the new Chucky movie is that the doll of the original 1987 version, or was it 1988? That version is, uh, as you may know, possessed by a murderer, Charles Lee Ray who uses some voodoo to put his soul in there in the final moments of his life during a shootout with police. And so when the doll comes to life in that original Chucky movie, he's spouting all this profanity and he's got this vibrant personality. It's, a, it's basically a really horrific human being trapped in this vessel of an innocent-looking doll. That juxtaposition is what is so striking. In this new Child's Play movie, however, the filmmakers go this riskier route where Chucky isn't possessed by an evil human, but is actually more like Alexa. The opening shows us some programmer at a Vietnamese factory where all these smart dolls are being made. Uh, he starts fucking with the doll's programming so that he suppresses its quote-unquote violence inhibitor, and he disables Chucky's you know profanity blocker, uh, along with some other stuff. So even though Chucky goes kinda rogue toward the end of the movie, he's played like a genuinely sympathetic, confused, malfunctioning piece of artificial intelligence. There's no, there's no real consciousness there, no real malice. It's just misunderstanding, and yet you can see in the doll's face this kind of pain whenever he does something wrong, and he, but he had the best of intentions. In the first, you know, two acts of the movie, whenever Chucky does something violent to a person or an animal, he does it because he's trying to satisfy his owner, which in this case is a young teenager named Andy. And so Chucky only hurts people when Andy, in private, confides to the doll that he'd like to see those people go away, or he says that he doesn't like them. 
Andy doesn't tell Chucky to hurt people. The doll just kind of goes ahead out of his own initiative and does it for Andy. He's hurting people out of a kind of poorly calibrated allegiance to his owner, rather than a sort of natural cruelty that we saw in the early Chucky movies. And so I thought there was an interesting subtext to the movie, something having to do with the digital age and how social media makes us confront ourselves and maybe, like, something about Trump supporters? Gary Vaynerchuk is an entrepreneur and social media guru who I mention on this show pretty often at this point, and he's really adamant about arguing that social media hasn't changed us, but rather that it has exposed us. He says that there were always racists, uh, and they always lived next door, and people were always self-conscious and cruel, and that now we're just seeing it all exposed, and in some cases flaunted. And this new child's play is about an angsty kid who confesses his ugliest thoughts to a robot, and when the robot acts on his behalf upon those ugly thoughts, it becomes a weird kind of window for Andy into the ugliness of his own thoughts and feelings. Chucky is a toy whose evil is defined by manifesting the most visceral emotional desires of his owner. It's reflecting an age of, of Twitter's cancel culture, where a person's secret biases and desires, perhaps secret even to themselves, are pulled into the light, revealed for all of their ugliness, and, apart from being exposed, are also sometimes magnified to the point of distortion. Chucky hears that Andy doesn't like his mother's boyfriend, so Chucky thinks, okay, this man should fucking die. Anyway, interesting shit, Bobble. Go see it. Okay, so this is the end of the episode, and I'm going to do something now that I haven't done in a while, or at least I'm mean, in this way I haven't done it ever. A couple weeks ago, I posted something to the podcast. Uh, you might have seen it. It was a DVD commentary for Bride of Frankenstein, which I recorded kind of off the cuff, and I was a little high when I did it. As It was basically just me like pontificating and giggling for an hour. But a couple of people um, pointed out that uh, they preferred it to the way that I normally do the show. They said that, like, you know, it, it sounds very organized and, and clear-headed, given how scripted it is, but that it can seem a little too clear-headed and maybe a little too, I don't know, or just a little rote. And so they suggested that I um, just try to be a little more conversational here and there, and I don't want to do that with the whole podcast. I think I'm t a little too much of a control freak. But so I, I went on Instagram and I asked, uh, I asked for, like, some ideas of topics that I could riff about, and I figure ultimately it's going to come down to me just kind of, since this is an end-of-the-show thing, me just riffing about general things that have been going on. But one of the Thousand Movie Project followers, uh, my friend Prosper, suggested that I go on a riff about fake sponsorships. And I don't know what he means by that, so I guess I'm not going to do that, but I want to thank Prosper for making, <laughs> for pitching something that I should talk about. I met Prosper at Tea and Poets, which is also where I would host the Thousand Movie Project uh, free movie screenings, and he's far and away one of the smartest kids I've ever met. And uh, yeah, so thanks Prosper for hearing this. But so I figured that um, I may as well just like riff about shit that's going on. And uh, one of the things, weirdly, that's been going on and catching my attention lately, and I've been thinking about it a lot, is the ease with which I'm getting like very suddenly very angry about things. Which isn't to say that I'm like lashing out at people or even like expressing it at all. I'm just internalizing it, which is not good because then when I when I when I'm in a critical moment where like my anger is flaring up, like I feel it. I feel it climbing in my throat and like I feel it in my shoulder blades. This this weird twitchy tension. And like for the past couple of months, there have been the for both of my jobs, there have been these kind of uh, Rubicons, like where it's I ha I do this thing and continue with the job, or I don't do this thing and I let the job kind of slip away. 
And last month, I was I, with such a like a cool-headed, relaxed conviction. I was just behaving as though, yeah, it's time. I'm leaving both of these gigs. It has now turned out that that would be a very bad idea, so I'm not going to go that route. But I was so... I don't know if it was like something leading up to this anger, like... Uh, but I was just totally ready to like immolate my work situation. It's it's probably some kind of cycle. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've just been super pissed all the time and like driving around and just getting really angry and really upset about I don't know how things are working out with work and money and stuff and braced for the frustration of moving in August. Um, I'm not sure exactly where I'm moving, but I'm hoping it's to Coral Gables, which is a place that I've always wanted to live in. It's still sort of one of my dream situations. And there are some studios that are like 800 to $1,100. The 800 situation is like, it's a nice studio apartment and a, and a fairly nice part of the town, but it's um, it's got no stove or fridge, neither of which I necessarily need, I guess, because... So there's the anger thing, which is a weird thing to cope with, but um, it, it, it's going to move along, I'm sure. And then another thing that was catching my attention is uh, this interest I've been having in, in just about everything that I'm writing lately in um, homeless, uh, the people who are homeless in my area, which there are very many. This morning I counted on my walk from, the one mile walk from my apartment to Pasión del Cielo, which is the cafe in Brickell where I, I do a bunch of writing in the mornings. There were uh, 13 homeless people sleeping on the sidewalks and under I-95 and stuff. And um, the guy who does, I, I, I was thinking of writing like another monologue about this and then it would, there would be like a, a consecutive trilogy of episodes of the podcast where I have a huge monologue about the homeless people in my area. But um, let me just go ahead and riff about it here. I forget the name of the dude who does Humans of New York, but at the moment he is in Canada, I believe. And last week or the week before that, he profiled this guy who's who was homeless and has been homeless for 15 years, I think he said. And for most of those 15 years, he's been in a relationship with another guy, I think that he knew from before he was homeless. I, I don't remember exactly. But he was talking about um, their relationship. His partner recently died, and so he's using you know more than usual, and he, he doesn't think he'll ever be able to get sober because all of his friends also use. But in talking about this 15-year romance that he had with uh, this other guy, he talked about how um, despite the fact that they were homeless and in a perpetually kind of desperate situation, they still managed to have date nights. And they would go to restaurants and they would go to movies, um, which makes sense. I, I don't think it would be particularly difficult to store away, you know, $30 in order for you know, $40 for one outing a month. And um, it was interesting. I started, that got me thinking for the rest of the day about like... Um, yeah, the fact that you're homeless doesn't mean that you're not participating in all of sort of the cultural things or, I, I don't know, the daily life things. And something I had noticed a while ago when I moved to Little Havana is that there's a there are a couple dollar stores um, in and around my block, and they sell a lot of beer by the can. And it's, uh, it's refrigerated in there with the Cokes, and the Gatorade is like loose bottles of Corona and the Magnum bottles of Corona that are like three Coronas in one. And then yesterday I was walking into the CVS um, on 8th Street just under I-95 and there was a homeless guy sleeping um, in the shade and he had three loose bottles of Corona that were unopened ju um, just sort of tucked into the shade by his head. And then I realized when I go into these stores um, most of what they sell is single-use things and it hadn't occurred to me that there might be businesses in my area who totally embrace the fact that their client, their clientele is almost entirely homeless people. 
and that they tailor their inventory to accommodate the needs of the homeless who come in and they spend two, four, twelve dollars on things that they need for that day or the next couple days. And, uh, you know, this is not totally a digression, but like at the moment I'm working on this thing. It's a podcast kind of radio drama. It's called The Ballad of Felicia Knightley. And I just finished writing the first draft. It's 36 pages. And uh, I think it's going to be like a 90 minute sort of podcast radio drama. And then I'm going to publish it as an ebook. And I noticed that sometimes when I'm in the middle of like a really long writing project, usually it's some, something about fiction, like I'll be weirdly, I don't know, I don't want to say weirdly attuned to things, but um, I, my my head kind of becomes like flypaper and um, little things just stick to it and marinate there for a long time. And I don't know if it if the fact that I'm so consumed by this idea of little convenience stores tailoring their inventory to the needs of homeless people is necessarily like a genuine interest or is it this i don't you know part of like that gestating project the felicia knightley project or is there some other thing brewing also though on the subject of the anger thing and this being all over the place this is why i script the episodes is because i know that i just go on tangents and digressions and this is what it's if you were to have any interest in doing so this is what it's like to hang out with me this is how the conversation goes but um, a few days ago, I was listening to an episode of the Mark Maron podcast where he was talking with Stephen Colbert, and they were talking, they were commiserating about what kind of like petulant, angry twenty-somethings they were. And as they're as they're describing what they were like at that age, I was kind of like, oh shit, it sounds it sounds a lot like me. Not necessarily in the sense of like, oh, these were guys with you know with budding you know promise, and you know they were going to go on to do great things. Like I was not thinking of it in that sense. Just Mark Maron said something interesting. He said that like um, the anger is not really anger. It's just that your anger is is like your last defense against confronting something that is really painful or embarrassing. Well, I guess those are the same things. But one of the things that's super stressing me out, and I think it's contributing to this this perpetual and weirdly volcanic anger, is um, the money situation. Which is by no means super dire, and um, I can sort of nudge my parents if I'm in a really tight situation, and they'll help me out. But um, like today, I was at um, the coffee shop at my job on, on campus, and um, I, I know the ladies who work behind the counter now very well because I go there every day at like the same time for a colada that I share with my off, for a colada that I share with my entire office, and the colada costs like a buck twenty-one, I think. And so today, I'm go, I go there, I order the coffee. Um, I'm doing my banter with the ladies behind the counter, and I go to cash out, and I take out my debit card, which they see me use every day, and I swipe it, and I know this from, like, a couple weeks ago when the same thing happened. If you're, if you don't have enough money in your account for the transaction, their computer shows, the, the computer charges you all the money that you have in your account, and then it shows a remaining balance. So I swiped my card, and she gave me like this kind of very sympathetic look, and she was like, um, "Oh, are you are you going to be here on Friday?" And I was like, "No, I don't work on Friday." And I could see her like hemming and hawing, and and then I realized like I didn't have enough money on my card, and what she was going to suggest is that I could come back in on Friday, which I'm sure she knew was my payday, and you know pay for two coffees. Um, but she was trying to let me off the hook and not embarrass me. But it turned, I, I had I had a little cash on me, so I was able to pay. But it was just it was it, I don't want to say it was particularly humbling, but it was just being confronted again with sort of the severity of my financial situation. In that like fuck, it's like two days before payday, and I did not have I did not have a dollar twenty in my in my checking account, which is kind of embarrassing to acknowledge. But at the same time, it feels like you know I'm in my late I'm still in my late thirty is looming like death's scythe.
but um i know i'm still fairly young in this profession or if, if i can call it that i don't know and and yeah it, it's kind of embarrassing to be in that situation but at the same time i i have a feeling that like i'm not alone I feel like that's one of the great takeaways that I've gotten from watching all these movies from Thousand Movie Project and from just reading novels for so many years is that the reason this art, like this kind of narrative art, is universal is because it's exploring things. Some Someone started writing and talking about things that are true to all of us but we never discuss. And I know that like online, through the veils of anonymity that you see on Reddit and stuff, I see that people my own age are in very similar financial straits. So I'm not like humiliated by it or anything, but it was just like every now and then the reality of your situation, something happens to like communicate to you the reality of your situation, which you were not maybe, a, not that you were blind to the realities of your situation, but there, I don't know, there's something about them that you can put them in your back pocket and not think about them like up close or not confront them head on. But this was like fucking head on. It was applied directly to the forehead. Head on. It was applied directly to the forehead. Head on. It was applied directly to the forehead. I didn't have a buck 20 for a cup of coffee. And and also just the heartbreak of like one of these five or six old ladies that I see every day. She like was sympathetic. She didn't even want to tell me that I didn't have enough money. She just wanted to like offer it as though it were spon some spontaneous thing like, oh, you want to pay for, how about you not pay for coffee today and pay for two coffees on uh, your payday? And, I, and, and yeah, so what I'm thinking about with the Felicia Knightley thing is that I'm going to charge $2.99 for the ebook on Amazon, and then I'm going to ask people, like, coming up to the release date for the um, for the podcast episodes, that I think I'll spread it across three episodes, maybe four. I'm going to ask people, like, okay, if you want to donate um, a couple bucks to the Thousand Movie Project Venmo or PayPal, then I will read your voice off in the podcast as with, like, a producer credit, or I'll list it in the ebook with a, you know, just in the acknowledgments page. And yeah, anyways, that's the stuff that's going on. This was my very tepid and sort of reluctant attempt to try to do an off-the-cuff sort of conversational podcasty thing because I so cringe. When I listen to, like, amateurish podcasts of my caliber, whatever, like, my age, at, okay, like, okay, so I've got, like, thir I, 10, 11 podcast episodes of that, that I feel like, okay, these are the 11 or so episodes that are from the period where I knew what I was doing or I'm starting to get a solid idea of what I'm doing. And when I when I go ah fuck when I go when I go to um I got all these scented candles now I'm obsessed with scented candles and I've got these tin lids and I sort of clap them around like warriors come out and like I'm I'm just obsessed with the tinny you can hear um so yeah what was I talking about um anyways yeah I just I I I I don't trust myself to be interesting off the cuff conversation but this is me taking a like a, a, a stab at like isolated you know focused that's not it's, but it's see it's not even that focused because I'm I'm all over the place it's it's focused insofar as it's going to be relegated to the back end of the podcast so if you are one of those couple listeners who likes to hear more off the cuff kind of conversation now you know go to the endish part of the podcast if you like the more formalized monologuish things which i i tend to prefer because it's me at my best you know i was able to revise everything that i said it's my clearest presentation of the things that were important to me that week whatever i was thinking about but anyways yeah i think i'm tentatively committed to doing it this way now where every like shit is very formalized and scripted and structured in the beginning and in the middle and then right at the end i just i i just show you what a disaster i am here at the mic anyways all right thanks for listening
listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.